You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films in the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented The Breakfast Club. Watching it with me is Lindsay Bowers, who can be found on Twitter at Lindsay C. Bowers. Hi, Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Very good. So The Breakfast Club, when we spoke before about which film you'd like to cover, this was the first one that came straight to your head. What's so uh, memorable about it for you? Well, I'm not incredibly familiar with a lot of 80s films because it was actually the decade I was born in. So um, I, I grew up sort of watching more 90s films, to be honest. But this one really sticks out in my memory because I remember clearly the first time I watched it. I remember just how much it grabbed me because I was going through I was in my early 20s and um, I remember I was going through a phase where I was painting a lot and whenever I painted I like to just have the tv back on for background noise and I remember the breakfast club came on and I thought oh I've heard of that but I don't I didn't really have a clue what it was about or you know anything about it to be honest but it came on and I thought I'll just keep that on the background and Five minutes in, I put my paintbrush down, uh, my paintbrush mm-hmm. down, and I just did not pick it up again. I was completely immersed. Um, there's something about the dialogue and the characters that just it just completely gripped me. Um, and I remember like, telling everyone about it after. It's like, oh my god, have you seen this film? You have to see it. It's funny that this film. It's very almost looking at the characters is quite stereotypical in a way that to describe them in simple terms would be you'd have your bad boy your jock your nerd your weirdo things like that Um, and I think but part of it is the fact that they're so well fleshed out yeah it's quite easy for I guess for a lot of people to either identify with them or certainly we've all been to high school or secondary school or whatever with with people similar to that and the fact that there are so many reasons behind both why they are a jock or a weirdo and also what motivates them Um, is there anything in that that you kind of recognized yeah well it's funny what you say about stereotypes because um they're put forward at first as, you know, stereotypical princess, athlete, brain, criminal, um, basket case, I think, are the official terms they use in the actual film. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think everyone can kind of relate to one more than the others, maybe. Um, but the, I think the point of a film is that um, they are all each other and they're more similar than they think. Um, and that's very much reflected in the essay that Brian writes to the teacher at the end because um, they're all mm. told to write about who they are. And the problem is none of them actually know who they are, and that's the biggest similarity they have. That's part of the opening quote, well, um, on the screen, that's by David Bowie. Yeah. And, you know, I'll read it out. It's, and these children that you spit on as they try and change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Now, bear in mind this is set entirely on a Saturday detention at school. Um, they go through maybe a journey is putting it a bit too finely, but they certainly over the course of that eight or nine hour period, they learn about a lot about themselves, a lot about their where they might be heading in life and the interactions between them, because these are people who ordinarily wouldn't really have a lot to do with each other. It's um, it's quite touching in parts at the end. Very touching. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they open up to each other and, um, 
you know, they have these um, kind of conceptions of each other. At the beginning, um, they all think Claire is a spoilt madam, um, but she insists that actually she finds being popular very hard and her parents use her as a pawn against each other. Uh, Brian is this SWAT who seemingly has really loving parents but it turns out that the reason he's in detention is really grim he could, couldn't cope with the pressure so he's thinking about killing himself um there's very touching moments to do with all of them actually and when um Alison you know that moment when she says her parents ignore her and her eyes are brimming with, brimming with tears it's heartbreaking and you can see that Andy's sort of really um kind of feeling for her in that moment as well and that's when they start connecting and there's such um an unlikely couple but they presumably become a couple at the end yeah and something that is quite easy to notice at the beginning is the the age disparity between the actors anyway uh you forget during but um i mean i, I made a note of some of them and that judd nelson who was john bender the bad boy was 25 when this yeah. was filmed and yet molly ringwald was 16 yeah which you know sort of a nine-year difference and mm. then say jumping of to the end they they end up having a little kiss at the end which you wouldn't see coming certainly for the first probably even two-thirds of the film there yeah. you know, he's really antagonizing goading her he's mm. quite unpleasant to her at times mm. um and the fact that in the end you know she gives him one of her very expensive looking earrings which he puts yeah. in his ear that's something that's so different it's it's as a both as a token gesture but also as that sort of connection yeah I love that bit actually um when I first saw the film the thing that really actually um struck me was that relationship I thought there was even though there's that age difference I thought there was such chemistry but it's interesting because re-watching it this week for the first time in a long time, a part of me was actually quite shocked by that relationship um, because he he sexually harasses her, to mm. be honest. Um, he he makes digs about, you know, he says, shall we impregnate the princess? Or um, he makes some reference to impregnating her. Um, the bit where he kind of goes underneath a desk and puts his head between her legs and looks at her knickers and keeps asking her about her virginity. It's so crude. And we're now in a time that's um, with a culture that's very hypersensitive, especially around this current um, Me Too hashtag. And um, watching it now, I felt I felt a bit, ooh, like in today's culture, that's a little bit unnerving. And then she gets with him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe his tactics work from the beginning. But yeah. as, you, as you say, in the, in the current climate, certainly the, the time we're recording, things are, are moving and, and every, you know, it seems like a different story comes out every couple of days. But you know, this behaviour certainly seen through our eyes, what, 33, 34 years later on, mm. is really uncomfortable. And, and I guess that was the point that, uh, John Hughes was making you know he wrote this he directed it and looking through some of the the making of bits of the film where Judd Nelson stayed in character off set or certainly when they weren't filming to the point that he almost got fired because he was being so unpleasant to Molly Ringwald yeah I read that as well yeah. you can imagine it can't you I mean he plays um that character so well I mean you can tell he's a bit older than high school age but he mm. still pulls it off he's just got that angsty tortured animalistic body language and 
Um, a lot of it was ad-libbed as well. Apparently, it came out with a lot of um, kind of made-up words for Bender. I read that John Cusack and Nicolas Cage were um, kind of first choices for the role, but they couldn't afford Nicolas Cage. Um, I'm not quite sure why they didn't go with John Cusack, but I think it was actually really good casting, so I'm glad they kept him. It was, and just trying to think of Nicolas Cage in that role would have been crazy. Yeah, I mean, I could imagine him doing it really well as well because he play, he plays kind of nutcases really well. But actually, John Bender isn't a nutcase. He's just no. a he's a kid who desperately wants to be accepted and loved deep down, isn't he? Yeah, and and part of his background, he's, he's basically certainly implies that he's physically abused at home. He's yeah. bullied and. Uh, that by his by his father certainly, but the the home life is so unpleasant that he feels like he has to act it out. Um, he shows what appears to be a cigar burn on his arm and indicates that you know was it his dad who did it or was it him doing it as a self harm? And mm. the the conflict between him and the, the teacher, Mister Vernon, and which sort of boils to a head as well because you know, Mister Vernon basically challenges him to a fight when he's yeah. put him in the, in the cupboard and this is what he gets at home and this is why the, the teacher sees his reaction and thinks yeah you're you're nothing but mm. this is exactly how his life is he's bullied and physically intimidated by by older people by people who are supposed to be looking after him and it's no surprise yeah. that he has to or feels that he has to step up and and be that larger than life character which you know, ultimately it kind of boils down towards the end that um, he, say, rebels against it, but he's the one who goes off into the, well, not quite into the sunset with with his princess, but certainly with her earring and her blessing. And his 80s fist punch. Oh, classic. <laughs> Didn't he invent that, actually? Yeah, I, I think I read it was ad-libbed. Um, yeah. They were try, trying to get that sort of perfect ending and he just did it at the end. It's just one of those perfect scenes, you know, the end of a film, they've gone through this potentially life-changing Saturday, although he goads the teacher so much, he's got another three months of these Saturdays to come, so we don't know what, where his journey's going to go. But uh, it's it's just clearly one of those moments. Um, one thing I just, I've sort of, and, and I'm coming into this almost deliberately blind, is I did catch a little bit of the film Pitch Perfect which I haven't seen in full. I think it's, I'm not even going to go into that, but that's that film seems to have a thing with The Breakfast Club. Oh, really? Because I've seen bits of it, but I, yeah. I couldn't stay with that one, I have to admit. No, it's, I say it's not normally my cup of tea, but <laughs> I do remember watching a little bit and they, for some reason, watched The Breakfast Club, but then they focus on the end, that Bender doing his fist pump and what a sort of a moment it is. And the fact that... Yeah films 30 odd years later they're still referencing it shows how important this is yeah but i think because so many films um actually these days comically reference it when i watched breakfast club this week um and then saw that fist pump at the end because it'd been quite a while since i'd seen it so i didn't know it was coming i forgot that was the last shot i did actually laugh it it, <laughs> it, it does look quite comical to me like a lot of 80s um, um, conventions in film do make you laugh now, like the music and the cheesiness yeah. and um, the bit where they get high in the library and um, <laughs> Andy smashes the glass. And <laughs> What kind of weed was he smoking? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it was one of those, they're coming, they're coming, I think. 
but this is again when it's you look at it in in pop culture when i i watched it a couple of days ago when i turned it off and i think it, the telly went on to itv or itv2 when family guy was on and it was an episode of family guy which was ripping off a lot of the breakfast club mm-hmm. and it had at the end them playing the simple mind song and peter griffin doing the fist pump yeah i've seen that and one. it just and it just it's just crazy that these things and and i hadn't seen the breakfast club all the way through for for a number of years until the other day mm-hmm. and all these things that i've probably missed as well just the strange timing that it just happened to be an episode of Family Guy, which, you know, I dip in and out of occasionally, but it just happened to be that one. It's crazy. Even though that song's on, that song's on the radio all the time, it seems. Yeah, you can't hear it without thinking of the film, can you? No. That's one of the things you hinted at. Um, the the reason why they're in the detention in the first place, and, and as you said, um, Brian, the supposed nerd, wanted to bring a gun to school and and either and, and kill himself because his grades were struggling, and it turned out he had a flare gun that went off in his locker, which I suppose is comical in a way. But some of the other reasons are quite funny in a way that, and and again, it's it's the reason why they're sort of rebelling against their stereotypes. You know, Andrew, the Emilio Estevez character, who we learn quite early is a sort of fairly successful wrestler and they take the piss out of him wearing leotards and tights and and everything else and it turns out that he put was he duct taped someone's butt cheeks together yeah (laughs) which seems like a fairly standard job practice but it got him into detention and, and the reason why he felt bad was because it was he felt like his dad was pushing him to be this masculine wrestler competitive sportsman and then he was worried about what the other kid's dad would do to him knowing that he had his butt cheeks taped together (laughs) again it's that sort of semi-comedy but you know there's that poignant side to it as well where you think taped together butt cheeks which sound funny you know that there is a, a sadness behind it versus someone wanting to kill themselves yeah yeah and then even the the trivial side of Claire ditching class to go shopping and yeah. Alison, who apparently was in there because she had nothing better to do. Yeah, I was just thinking about her, actually. And I just thought, I wonder if she always had a crush on Andy and she overheard him get in a detention and thought, oh, go. Mm. <laughs> because they're very like Bender and Claire. They're very different in their yeah. social groups and, and where you, you would assume they'd be. And I suppose it, it being a film like that, you've got to have some sort of makeover in there at the end. And I didn't realise, and, and this was again showing my age, I've, I've seen Ali Sheedy in a number of different things. For some reason, it sticks in my head for being in short circuit. But um, I didn't realise I had such a crush on her. Oh, really? And that was before she had the makeover. Yeah, uh, yeah I prefer her before makeover. I find the makeover disappointing. It, it's a bit too twee, isn't it? yeah. Um, but I have a crush on the, well, I did when I first watched it, my crush was on Judd Nelson. Ah. Oh my God. I remember just being <laughs> very enamored with him and looking him up on IMDB and thinking, oh shit is like much, much, much older than me, you know, as if I would have a chance anyway. But you know, when you see someone in the film, you're like, oh, I'll look them up. And you realize they're ancient now. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Was that something you look for in the, in the bad boys in in all the other films? 
Yeah, I, well, I think a lot of girls kind of feel some kind of um, draw towards a bad boy. But I yeah. think it's because he's got that vulnerable side as well. Yeah, and, and even in this film, he sort of goes from arsehole to quite you feel sorry and, and, and have to remind yourself that then you know he's portraying a child who's going through an awful lot mm. it's um you know it's a, it's a great performance and and you do I guess it's, it's easy to sort of think how different would it be if Nicolas Cage did did it or John Cusack or anyone else it's you know sometimes you have to look at these films and think that it's a good thing these happen for a reason yeah. I've also been thinking about um, if they were to remake it today, who would they cast? Mm. And you just you couldn't replicate it because it, it was a film that could not exist outside the 80s. I mean, it could, but I don't think it'd be anywhere as good. No. I think the fact that it's set entirely within the school, it's set within eight or nine hours, the cast is small. There's, there's no special effects, you know. It could it, be a play, couldn't it? Yeah, and, and a, in fact, I think John Hughes was asked to rewrite it so high schools could put on their own performances of it, and that would which work makes so sense. well because you know keeping it within that sort of claustrophobic setting, there was some comic relief in there. But, um, mm. You know, even the the teacher and him doing his thing, you know, spilling his hot chocolate and going for his little wonders. He, um, but, you know, he's the closest we really come to a villain. And even then, yeah. you know, it's he's a teacher at the end of the day. And I, I guess the point is, you know, he's trying to put on these 16-year-olds, who are you, what do you want to be, when I'm sure he was exactly the same at their age, if not worse. Yeah, and you wonder what's going on with his person. Well, I did. I wondered what's going on with him at home for him to you know, threaten a kid in a cupboard the way you did. Because it's funny how your perception changes um, kind of when you watch something when you're a bit older or um, when it, when there's a bit of time has passed. Because uh, when I first watched it, I kind of thought um, Bender was such an arsehole. Like, if I was a teacher, I'd probably lash out like that. But yeah. when I watched it this week, I was shocked. And I thought, God, like, like he should get fired and... Yeah. You know. <laughs> he made a big point of telling Bender how much money he earned and, and this, that and the other. And it was just, I suppose it, the greed is good part of the 80s, but it's just really comes across unpleasant. He's not just a that sort of disciplinarian teacher, um, teacher even. He's horrible. Yeah. Virtually bullying a kid. But then, you know, on the other hand, we see when Emilio Estevez tries, actually wrestles bender in the library and he pulls out a flick knife mm. you know that's um I mean, that's a moment when they all kind of go Whoa. yeah he's he's not messing around yeah and he's, he's not just sitting there setting fire to his shoes nice <laughs> that was quite cool though yeah when he when he lights his uh cigarette on his shoes i think that's when um claire kind of starts um noticing him in a different light yeah there's that shot where she's um, gazing at him dreamily. And in hindsight, at the end, you can kind of say, right, that's where it all started. Yeah. <laughs> um, funny enough, when you look at sort of John Hughes's films, and, and obviously most of his big ones happened in quite a short space of time, and, and he did have the little run, and most of them did seem to have Molly Ringwald in them, where mm. Pretty in Pink and, and Sixteen Candles. But um, this was set in the same sort of town, almost they were all set in one place and it was filmed in the same school as Ferris Bueller oh did it know that yeah and and Ferris Bueller 
put on record in previous episodes and we haven't actually done that film yet, but I, I really don't like him. But you can imagine... The character. Oh, yeah, the character. Oh, he's, yeah. he's a knob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine him being in this detention and maybe being <laughs> taken down a peg or two by Bender. Oh, imagine a John, John Hughes crossover film yeah. where the characters interacted like that. Because um, Molly Ringwald and Matthew Broderick actually never were in a film together, even though they were like sort of each other's counterparts in a way. I don't think they were. Anyway. I'm trying to remember. I think Ali Sheedy was in War Games with him. Mm. Um, oh, this could be one of those Kevin Bacon games, couldn't it? Yeah. But I think Molly Ringwald um, sort of, um, she kind of um, abandoned the whole genre after a while, didn't she? She decided she wanted to move on from being typecast as the high school queen and then um, she didn't have a relationship with John Hughes anymore from what I've read. Yeah, I, I read a book by um, it was by Hadley Freeman about 80s films and there was she actually interviewed uh, Molly Ringwald as part of it and she was saying that it was you know her growing up over that period and trying to re- get away from this, as you say, typecasting and also try to, to spread her wings. And I guess it was difficult because she seems to be back in... in acting again i think she's in that netflix show is that the one riverdale yeah um yeah I'm... oh that is the most awful pile of crap ever by the way <laughs> but I, i'm still watching it <laughs> well you, you've started so you finish is that yeah did i hear that set in a school as well yeah it's that you know the archie comics yes oh um, it's, okay. it's based on those characters um it's it's very very bad but it's kind of like <laughs> junk food for your brain um I mean, I wouldn't. I'd recommend it to anyone sort of sixteen and under, but I'm still watching it. But yeah, <laughs> Millie, Millie, uh, Molly Ringworld plays the mum of one of the high school characters, and again, the high school kids are played by people who look like they're edging towards thirty. <laughs> Blimey! Well, this is it. You know, she's after all that typecasting. She's now come back as their mum, which there you I go. Yeah, says it all really. Um, <laughs> One of the sort of start of the one of the scenes later on, which you talked about earlier, was when they start smoking the weed that John keeps <laughs> in his locker, and I suppose that sort of situation is bound to bring out both more comedy and, and more emotions. Um, mm. Brian does his, you know, he gets the giggles earlier on and, and does this funny voice that I think he did in Weird Science as well. Um, <laughs> And, you know, a lot of the dancing and everything else. But it's where we sort of really start learning about some of the struggles that they're going through. Yeah. And also about Alison's compulsive lying when they're talking about sex, when they're pushing um, Molly Ringwald into talking about is she a virgin, this, that and the other, and and making her feel uncomfortable. Whereas Alison's talking about sleeping with her therapist and how she'd do anything for money (laughs) not even for a million dollars but (laughs) something she says that sums up I suppose high school or or maybe life in general where she says if you haven't you're a prude and if you have you're a slut yeah which is again touching on some of the the news bits that come out and everything where you know there is that sort of impression and and pressure on women mainly to either live up to a certain stereotype or try and form their character. And the fact yeah. that she lies quite openly about in, I think she actually used the word sleeping around, whereas 
Claire was under such pressure and, and ended up almost snapping, saying, yes, I'm a virgin. Yeah, yeah. Again, proper high school stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I don't know what it is about um, high school things, but I do really enjoy kind of watching those coming-of-age awkward scenes, uh, maybe to remind me that w- when I went through all that as a teen, I wasn't alone. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do also wonder with... Um, with all this talk of sex and virginity, it makes you wonder what, what happens afterwards because I have this big discussion, like will we even say hello in the corridor when we walk past each other? I like to think that if there was a sequel, um, Claire and Bender would be dating and then he'd get her pregnant and then it'd be an 80s Juno. <laughs> that would be an interesting film. Yeah, I suppose they, they could touch on the issue she talked about with her friends and having to live up to a certain character where you'd imagine that she'd be in that sort of high mid upper middle class sort of environment where teenagers don't get pregnant or if they do, it gets lied about and, and whatever. Um, and all of a sudden John would have to grow up and be a dad himself. It'd be a, it'd be a bit of a interesting one. Yeah. There were talks of sequels, weren't there? But, um, I think they couldn't get, I um, can't remember if it was Emilio or Judge, one of the actors wouldn't mm. get on board. But then would we, would we need a Breakfast Club sequel? No. I mean, maybe leave it alone if it's good. <laughs> it's something that seems to come up regularly on these podcasts where so many 80s films are either remade or sort of random sequels added on sort of 30 years later. Um, it's one of those that, as you already touched on, could you remake this film? Would it work in the current age? Um, and even a, a where are they now sort of thing would be yeah. just really odd. Yeah, I think so. It's strange that, you know, some, I mean, I guess Emilio Estevez is probably the one who had most of a, the biggest career in films anyway yeah. after this. Um, but he seems to be more behind the camera now and, pretty much pretending he's not related to Charlie Sheen. <laughs> I didn't actually know he was until I read up a bit about the film. When I yeah. read the, the guy who played a janitor made some um, comment about Martin Sheen having a heart attack on the set of Apocalypse Now and really, really offending him because he didn't realise the family link. Yeah, I suppose that's strange. The joys of... But then Charlie Sheen was in Ferris Bueller, wasn't he? And again, the... Oh, yeah. They don't fly too far from the nest. No. I don't actually hear or see much of a cast in things these days, though. I mean, Molly Ringwald in Riverdale was the last time I saw someone pop up from there. And she's not even in, but she's kind of a almost a cameo in that, really. Yeah. I think Ali Sheedy was in the news for something to do with James Franco recently, wasn't she? But I think... Oh, yeah. I think she tweeted something about it, apparently. Yeah. If I remember... Judd Nelson was doing some sort of the voice of one of the Transformers in the cartoon or something like that. But, oh, really? um, yeah, I'm unlikely to see those. But but again, <laughs> this is this is it, and it's part of part of the nostalgia, I suppose. As much as the music or anything else, it's the actors were unknowns or in some cases at the time, um, and yet this is one of the films that people look back on with the most fondness. Yeah, it's a good legacy to have, actually, isn't it? It is. You know, you think John Hughes did a lot of films in in a short period, um, 
and yet this one, which was, I, I'm not up on budgets, but it, it, you can't imagine this would have cost a lot of make, to make in comparison to some of his other ones. With a, you know, there were no huge set pieces like in Ferris Bueller or, or any of the, the parts of say, National Lampoon's Vacation or Weird Science. And maybe that's part of the appeal that it was relatively simple. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What are the other bits that people? sort of remember fondly and sort of weird watching in a way because it was something I completely forgot that happened was the dancing at the end <laughs> where they're all they're all still high on at this point aren't they yeah you're not going to come down that quickly um <laughs> some of the dancing in there you'd had sort of Emilio Estevez dancing like he was in flash dance <laughs> or, or footloose whichever one of those it was footloose wasn't it was that the one with the- I think so okay. yeah I can't remember. um <laughs> And then the, the it's obviously choreographed, but the the guys sort of doing their little walking on the banister, and the girls doing their foot shuffling. Foot shuffling yeah, there. even that was just so eighties, wasn't it? And you can't imagine current me remake of anyone trying to do anything like you'd see in a Kanye West video or something, Lady Gaga or something like that. No, absolutely. And that's another thing that gets referenced so much. I've seen that in The Simpsons, that whole dancing and <laughs> other films. And yeah, that's just, you, you can't try and replicate that or put a modern take on it. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And then again, it's just why people remember things fondly. And, and it's, you know, it's not a particularly long film. And yet we do feel like there's not pushing anything on us. They're not trying to cram too much in where, mm-hmm. you know, we're learning about these five kids. I say kids, some of whom older than others, mm-hmm. but they've all done silly things. And, and while, you know, most people didn't go to school taking flare guns and things like that, you know, some of the reasons for detention are perfectly relatable. Yeah. If you compare it to something like, I don't know, the closest thing I can think of recently would be the in-betweeners or something like that, where yeah. there seems to be a permanent, quest to lose the virginity or get up to these strange little japes but the um i suppose in that it's aiming for a different market but the the subtleties aren't quite there although you do have some of the characters evolving in their own slightly unpleasant ways i can't believe i've just thought actually as well i can't believe that um molly ringworld and anthony michael hall were dating in real life yeah because I just you mentioned the age differences between the actors, or um, he seems like uh, he's the same age as her, but he seems like such a child, doesn't he, yeah. compared to the others? Like the little squirt of a group. And the bit at the beginning where he's sitting there, sort of playing with his pen, you know, very much <laughs> like a bored infant, whereas she's there yeah. having, you know, the, having to be dressed in Ralph Lauren, just to yeah. make her seem that bit more snobby. And yet I think it was around the same time Weird Science came out and he was this sort of teenage, say, wannabe Lothario and that sort of thing where a very, very different character. And yet, you know, also a John Hughes film. So they, they clearly have their, clearly had his favourites. Maybe uh, maybe he was, in his eyes, the male Molly Ringwald as well as Matthew Broderick. Um, yeah. Yeah. One other thing I was going to talk about was um, when it comes to quotes in a film like this. If there was one that you would think of for almost what what would be the one that you'd stick with? 
the film opens and closes with um, Ryan reading the essay um, and a lot of that is quite poignant. But I'm trying to think. Is a moment that really stands out for me, which I've already mentioned, is the bit where Andy's saying to Alison, what do your parents do to you? Yeah. Do they hurt you? And, you know, she, she doesn't speak at all for the first 33 minutes of the film. And it takes so long for her to start opening up in particular and even start talking. And um, you expect it to be really, like, you know, sexual abuse or she's been beaten up. And then just those simple words, they ignore me, is actually even more heartbreaking because it makes you realise just how how easy it is to hurt your child. Because do the parents even realise that they're ignoring her or that she's feeling ignored? Yeah. It's just so angst. It's such teenage angst, isn't it? And you can see just in her behaviour in, in that 33 minutes, you know, yeah, she, she doesn't say anything, but her behaviour and it, it's startling even to the others in the group when they watch her making her sandwich which yeah. sugar and breakfast cereal and all sorts and making her um drawing her picture and putting a ruffling her dandruff over it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, maybe I should re- remove that comment about me having a crush on her but uh I know, I, I know it was cheese but uh, even so it was <laughs> it's one of those things as a parent, I suppose watching these things, you know, you've grown, you, you grow up with your own idea, and then you you see these things, which yes, they're they're written for drama or they're written for a film, but you wonder about the parents. Do they see this behaviour and think it's normal? You know, if, um, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I I was quite fond of a crisp sandwich when I was a kid. It wasn't yeah. not the most nutritious meal, but it will do. Um, but would you put sugar in them? <laughs> yeah, that was the weird thing. Yeah, and I suppose that's part of it for for even not necessarily teens or, or young adults who watch the film and the, when they talk about the parents and the the pressure that they put on them or or not in in Alison's case and. I guess it's something for certainly not not something for everyone, but you know to think about if you're that competitive dad whose kids are potential athlete or anything like that. It's you know a, a lot of certainly I, I grew up with dreams that my daughter's going to play football professionally, but you know it's it's early days and she only got her first football <laughs> last week. But how old is she? Uh, she's nineteen months. Oh, so. a bit early then. Bit early, but um, she can say football. That's the main thing. Ah, oh. have you got a quote that stands out for you then? Um, well, there, there were parts of it where you, there are things that you find funny that you kind of adopt. Where it was um, Bender saying to Andrew about you know basically sticking his finger up, going, "Can you hear this? Shall I turn it up?" Giving him that. That was yeah. And the bit where he says. Um something about Barry Manilow's wardrobe like yeah. that, that's the first laugh of a film for me I think and there's a few more kind of throughout from him yeah I mean the, the one that stands out in and uh, maybe not in a way that as a motto for my life but when you know as I said earlier Alison says about if you haven't you're a prude if you have your slides it's quite so powerful the way that she puts that and it's kind of reminds you you know because in my day job I occasionally deal with a lot of young people who who have these issues of social pressure and stuff where Mm -hmm. 
you have to remind yourself that you know kids can be not deliberately a lot of the time but they can be very cruel and unpleasant to other kids based on experiences that not everyone has claire the the most popular girl in the school who has hangers on and and that everyone assumes is the prom queen and and this that and the other and yet she doesn't want to be seen as being a prude yeah even though she hasn't you know had had any sort of well, indicate she's had any sort of relations with a guy and yet Alison who is a virgin but lies openly about sleeping with therapists and and all sorts it kind of just a, a nice little reminder of the sort of power of, of language I suppose yeah. but um, just the relationships in between I suppose it's not really the it's not really one of the funny ones I'm not going to come away thinking this is like a something by Mel Brooks or anything yeah. but it's certainly one of those things that um, as, as an interaction you certainly remember it yeah and it's a theme but still explored so much today um, I mean, have you seen 13 Reasons Why on Netflix? Uh, no, I haven't. That's um, about, again, high school and teenagers and mm. a lot of it's based around kind of sex themes, very, very dark, actually, rape. Um, and, yeah, just thinking about the themes and the problems made me think it's, it's something that people still very much explore in film and TV today and always will, yeah. I guess. You don't want to sort of brush it under the carpet by saying kids will be kids, but um, hey-ho. So what I'll do is I've got the closing narration or the the essay that Brian left for Mr. Vernon. Mm. Um, Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong, but we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. I think that pretty much sums it up. It does. Yeah. Right, well, um, Lindsay, thank you very much for joining me to talk about this film and for giving me an excuse to re-watch it and revisit it again. Yes, same to you. Thank you for getting in touch. I'll pause the podcast and uh, rewind it and make sure I get it back to the video shop. And hopefully in the future you can come back and talk about another classic and uh, maybe something a little bit lighter. And, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, and I'll leave you with the song that was number one in the UK charts when this film was released which was in June 1985, and it was 19 by Paul Hardcastle. Lindsay again, thank you very much. Thank you. In 1965, Vietnam seemed like just another foreign war, but it wasn't. It was different in many ways, and so were those who did the fighting. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19.
Vietnam, the combat soldier typically served a 12-month tour of duty.